Good morning. Once again, my name is Vox Mansalungan. I'm an elder at Missio Church, and I am the student, direct, student ministry director there. Uh, this morning, I'm joined by my children, Jonah and Isabella, and my wife, Tori, who's also pregnant. So very, very exciting times for us. <clears throat> A few weeks ago, David asked me to preach for today's service, and he filled me in that I'd be concluding the sermon series, What is Your Church All About? And he asked me to speak on serving, which I was very excited to do, because not only do I hold servitude as a core value in my faith, but also because I just come back from a men's retreat uh, with my church where the speaker taught on this morning's Bible text. And so I was very encouraged to hear that speaker. And I'm glad to be here with an opportunity to preach again and share what I've been learning. There's a Christian tenet that we find in Matthew, and it says this, Jesus teaches this, the last shall be first, and the first last. It compels Christians to pursue humility and servitude over their own personal advancement. It runs contrary to how the rest of the world operates. The rest of the world indoctrinates people to believe they have to watch out for themselves first and foremost. To protect me and mine. Have you guys heard that? Me and mine. Whereas the Christian conviction leads believers to serve, to serve others first, and make themselves low, trusting it is God who will lift them up. It is God who will promote them. There's no self-promotion needed in Christianity. In our faith, calling someone a servant is a compliment. It's part of our church jargon. Oh, you're such a servant. It's recognizing an individual's hard work. It's recognizing their humility. And it's high praise. It's high praise because we're saying, hey, you are like Christ. And unbeknownst to me, the secular world finds being called a servant insulting. I was at work one time. I worked for uh, Mary Haven Center of Hope, uh, my Monday through Friday job. And one time I told a coworker, yeah, you're such a servant. Thank you so much. What a servant you are. You know, they were doing a really great job. They were being so helpful to me. They were taking on some of my responsibilities. But the look they gave me back, it was a look, it was confusion, it was contempt. It was, it, their look said, why would you call me that? And never say that to me again. This morning, we're going to look at the scripture, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through, 7 through 11. And it will be a fitting conclusion to the series, What is Your Church All About? As Peter gives practical instruction to the church on what we're supposed to be about, what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to look like. And just to warn you, there will be times through the Scripture where you'll be thinking, what does this have to do with serving? But I promise you, as as as, as we read through it, we're going to discover servitude in the Scripture. We're going to discover its application. So if you please would stand with me in reverence for a reading of God's Word. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11. through I'm reading out of the English Standard Version here. And Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded 
for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Spirit that opens up Your Word to us, that we may understand it, that we may receive it. Thank You for this church, New Village Church. Thank You for the leadership here. Lord, thank You for this morning. May our mouths be filled with praise for You, O God. We adore You. We love You. We recognize You as our Savior. And this morning, may we worship You in spirit and in truth. And may we be called to serve. May we be convicted with joy, with passion to serve for Your glory because it belongs to You. And in Your precious Son's name, Jesus Christ, Amen. You all may be seated. The end of all things is at hand. That is how the text opens up. Peter does not see this randomly, say this randomly. And when we see this phrase, we tend to be very quick to start thinking about end times. Perhaps our thoughts drift to things like the rapture, the antichrist. But as I study and read the text and read what other biblical scholars have to say, I've discovered that this is less a comment about eschatology or the apocalypse and more about the sovereignty of God. This text is about the unfolding of His plan. About His will being fulfilled. Peter, the author of the letter, he's setting the stage. He's pointing his audience to look at the story arc of humanity. If this is the end of all things, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all living things. God created man and woman to inhabit creation and have dominion over it. But as we know, things take an unfortunate turn as Adam and Eve rebel against the Creator and disobey Him. And thus sin enters the world through the first Adam. Corrupting creation, corrupting mankind, Yet God in His great love initiates a plan for redemption. See, God has a plan this whole time. He has a plan for redemption for a broken humanity. And we see it in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. God establishes a people for Himself through Abraham and His descendants who become the nation of Israel. And it would be through Israel that God would bring forth the Messiah, the Chosen One, to deliver Israel from oppression. And as the prophet Isaiah writes, to bring justice to the nations. Hallelujah. This Messiah would be none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who would give His life as a perfect offering, laying it down on the cross to become the payment for our sin. And it, it seems so backwards. The Anointed One, who is supposed to be King, dying a criminal's death on the cross. 
Yet God the Father, in His infinite wisdom, in His infinite sovereignty, would raise His Son three days later from the tomb. Christ the risen Lord, a walking, a breathing testimony of His Godhood, defeating death, defeating the grave. And before His disciples, before a cloud of witnesses, He would ascend into heaven, lifted up, He is exalted. He is promoted to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. But Jesus Christ does not abandon His people on earth. He does not leave them without help. But He pours out His Spirit, a helper. He pours out His Spirit on them in Pentecost. You see, Peter is not inferring that end times are coming. No, Peter is stating that the end times have already arrived. Because God's plan is is already in motion. The end is at hand today, just as it had been hundreds of years ago when Peter was penning this epistle. Christ's return, do not be mistaken, is imminent. And the church has been waiting 2,000 years. And with all the events that are happening in Israel, people are jumping up and down, shouting, the end is near! And they're correct. They are correct. We are in the final stage of God's redemptive plan, and Peter understood this. He understood all those years ago. And we're closer to Christ's return than we ever have been. So praise the Lord that every day we're getting closer. But I don't want us to be consumed with fear or hopelessness. And I want to warn us against becoming fixated, obsessed with predicting when and where and how future events will unfold. But you have to ask, what does this have to do with serving? Peter emphasizes the end being at hand primarily to embolden and to exhort the church. He is challenging them. He's shifting the reader's perspective to realize that God is in control, that Christ is indeed returning. There is nothing out of His hand. And we ought not to live our lives for ourselves, but for the King who is returning. We need, Because we know the end time is now, we need to have a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency to obey and a sense of urgency to serve. And if you're the type to take notes, my first point is that we need to be rooted in prayer. We need to have rooted prayer. And Peter writes that because we recognize that the end is at hand, then we ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayer. If we could see our existence through the lens of God's sovereignty, then we could be motivated to act. We could be motivated to think a certain way and pray in an effective manner. And I suspect that the church underutilizes prayer. Peter is prescribing prayer as part of the remedy to a sinful society. In the beginning of chapter 4, we didn't read it, but in verse 3, it gives a description of what the day was like. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, verse 3 says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That sounds a lot like the world we live in today. It's a reminder to us that the Bible is as relevant today as when it was first written. 
So let us not be a people who neglect prayer. Our lives need to have a culture of prayer where we practice personal, private prayer by ourselves, where we devote time to pray. Where we pray reflexively in times of duress and need, our first reaction is to turn to the Lord. Where we pray spontaneously, practicing prayer without ceasing. I tell my youth group students, you can pray wherever. You can pray on the school bus. You can pray in the bathroom, in the locker room. You can pray, pray in your classroom. There's no place that you cannot pray. We need to pray with others. We need to pray together. Pray with those we serve within the church. Pray that the, uh, the church has an effective and faithful ministry. We need to pray with our close friends and family that God will protect us. We need to pray with non-believers so that non-believers would see their need for God and would look to Him for their solution. And, and Peter says that we need to be self-controlled, right? And so we need prayer that is intentional. We need to concentrate when we pray. We need to think about our prayer. And too often Christians are just praying some rote script that is just being recited before mealtimes. Heavenly Father, thank you for the food. Amen. No. That's not how we ought to pray. Let us pray what we mean and let us mean what we pray. Let's be intentional with our prayer, church. And there's so much reactionary rage in society, especially online and social media. People getting outraged, social outrage. And it's my observation that Christians participate in meaningless outrage online more often than they would like to admit. And there's lots of outrageous things happening, right, in today's age. But our response shouldn't be with more vitriol or more bitterness. It shouldn't be panic or apathy. Our response should be prayer. Prayer that is, uh, Peter writes, sober-minded. So that's a level-headed prayer. Prayer that is not dictated by emotion. It's good to feel emotion, express emotion, but let's not pray totally dictated by I, I tell my children, hey, don't let your emotions control you. Let's have a level-headed, sober-minded prayer. We should be encouraged by Christ's eventual and imminent return, not anxious because of it. We need a prayer that is grounded in God's Word. See, there, there's a lot of fear-mongering in our news outlets and in social media, and I would be lying if I told you that it didn't affect our family. I'd be lying if I told you it doesn't affect us. Perhaps it's affected your family as well. Maybe this week you went through a panic attack because of what you're seeing in all the conflict in the world, seeing all the conflict in the Middle East. Maybe you're, feel, you're struggling with feeling defeated or you, you just feel so resigned because it's all so overwhelming. We need to pray through Scripture to rectify our mindset. If we pray through Scripture, then we can look to Scripture, then we can believe it, we could ground ourselves in it. Prayer shapes us. Just as much as we should expect prayer to transform our environment, we can expect God to use prayer to transform us as well. See, prayer transforms the exterior and also transforms the interior. And we need to pray for ourselves that we would be more like Christ. Pray that we would have the mind of Christ. 
Right? And we, we read together this morning Philippians 2. And so here, let me read a section for, for it again. Do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and listen, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Prayer produces Christ-likeness. Prayer produces humility. Prayer produces servitude. Prayer produces obedience. Prayer accomplishes the will of Christ. This is what 1 Thessalonians says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So let us not neglect to pray, church. Continuing all. My next point, above all, keep loving one another. Peter emphasizes the prominence to love one another above all. Jesus says that a mark, the mark of discipleship is our love for one another. Christians were called to love, to do everything in love. We're even called to love our enemies. But Christ makes a distinction that our love within the church for one another should be so special, should be so frequent that it's an identifying feature to the lost world. That our love for one another would be a benchmark. And love can be dramatically communicated through service to one another. Acts of service are poignant messages of love. Because they require time, they require energy, and maybe even resources like money. It's one thing to verbally say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, brother, I love you, sister. But it's an entirely different communication to receive love via an act of service. And service can look like a lot of different things, right? Cooking meals for one another, for the sick, or for uh, new mothers. It's helping around the house, helping to clean or to fix. Helping her out here at church during that work day. But biblical servitude is always centered in love. Because you want to give the best you can to another. You want to give the best you can to a loved one. Servitude from a place of love is foreign to a secular world. I was in Downport, Port Jefferson uh, the other day with my family when a young man approached me because he needed his car jumped. And uh, after I jumped his car, he offered me five bucks. I was like, no, 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 I wanted to do it. I wanted to help you. It's my joy to serve. It's a small interaction, but it indicates that people expect to pay for service. Right? People expect to have to pay for it. When the Gospel says to serve out of love, not looking for gain. That's what the Bible says. So acts of service bear witness to the love of Christ. It is why meeting 
The unmet needs of communities are such a persuasive evangelistic tool. The servitude of the church reflects the servitude of Christ. Sacrificial love reflects Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this than someone laid down his life for his friends. Sacrificing for the sake of others is love. And it's impractical to think I'm going to have regular opportunities to jump in front of a bullet for you. If the occasion arises, I pray that I would have that courage. But just as Christ commands us to carry the cross daily, we must also practice laying down our lives for our friends, for one another. To teach ourselves, we need to teach ourselves to be more willing to sacrifice. To sacrifice our own schedule, to sacrifice our own agenda, to sacrifice our own leisure, to put the needs of others before our own. Now, I've known David and Stephanie Moore for a while now, and I know that they have great love for me and my family. I know with great certainty that if I called them for help, that they'd put down whatever they were doing to come help me. And I know with equal certainty that they have great love for this congregation and will continue to lovingly serve this body of believers. And they've been serving for a long time. Loving New Village Church even to the point of sacrifice. If you need to look for a real-life example of Peter's mandate to keep loving above all, you can look to David and Stephanie. The prompt to love also reveals its benefits. It says, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. You know, Peter keeps it real by reminding us that life in relationship is often messy and often can get tangled with offenses and hurts. But when love is preeminent in relationship, it makes way for grace. It makes way for mercy. It makes way for forgiveness. Not only does it cover the error, but it also helps heal the wound. I love it when Paul says this in Colossians. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything in perfect harmony. Serving together in ministry is hard. And it can often lead to butting heads with one another. But I'm, sure, I'm sure you guys here at New Village Church have never got annoyed at each other while serving. Listen, long-lasting ministry is impossible without love for one another. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love propels us to bear with each other and also to bear each other's burdens with joy, with gladness. And then Peter gives us another reality check when he encourages us to Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is hosting others with their well-being in mind. 
It falls under the umbrella of serving others. It is different than entertaining because entertaining is more about showcasing yourself. About, it's more about showcasing your home, your talents. Hey, look, look how well I can cook. Look how well I can set the table. Look how neat my home is. Whereas hospitality is motivated in the growth, in the nurturing of people and relationships. We should not neglect to show hospitality to others. Hospitality welcomes outsiders and shows them that they are loved, that they are valued. Hospitality communicates to others that they have belonging. Hospitality is the means of God's people demonstrating the open arms and embrace of God the Father. So be hospitable. And do it without complaining. We as human beings are so quick to, to complain when things are inconvenient, when things are problematic. Grumbling is the product of believing that we are above serving others. Complaining reveals that the mindset that we have, that our time and our resources are worth more than obedience to God. But biblical hospitality, much like the love that covers a multitude of sin, is willing to overcome inconvenience, is willing to overcome adversity. Hospitality is long-suffering. Have people over your house for dinner and care enough to spend time with them. Don't just kick them out the door. Spend time with them to hear what they have to say. Be a good listener. And if you can listen well, then perhaps, will God, then perhaps God will present an opportunity for you to pour out godly truth into their lives. A truth that people are hurting to hear. If we do all the talking, then we're not going to hear what their need is. And I exhort you, I challenge you to host those who are hard to be around. I challenge yourself to stretch yourself and, and to labor to build relationships with those who are ornery and difficult to love. Don't be afraid of those long and awkward pauses you have with your neighbor. Don't be afraid of those. Welcome it. Don't be afraid to invite that grouchy coworker who doesn't have any friends. Or maybe even, I dare say, that homeless individual who circles around your neighborhood. Don't be afraid to reach out to them. Let us be reminded that during Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, He spent His time with the social outcasts, the dregs of society. And all throughout the Gospel accounts, we see Christ grumbling that He has to waste time with such knuckleheads. No! Quite the contrary! He constantly invites them! He constantly makes room for those who are dejected, those who have been refused. You know, I praise God for this. I've noticed an increase of Christian families fostering and adopting children. Praise the Lord. Bringing a child into their home with all their baggage. Bringing them into the fold. Treating them as their own kin. That is exemplary hospitality. And hospitality isn't just relegated to your home. You can show hospitality here at church too. Through, the love, through loving the young students who are in youth groups and VBS. If you have a visitor, shower them with love and attention. We have to understand, people can spot fakes 
easily. And it could be a real turnoff if they sense you're not being genuine. People don't want to feel like they're your project. So let your love, let your hospitality be authentic. Truly love them. That's all I'm trying to say, church. Truly love them. Continuing on. Gifts are from God and are used for His glory. Gifts are from God and used for His glory. God gives spiritual gifts to each believer, each and every single one. Believe it. And Scripture informs us the, the gifts that God gives us are varied. They're very different. Uh, scripture lists gifts of prophecy, gifts of serving, gifts of teaching and exhorting, gifts of being generous, gifts of leadership, gifts of mercy. The list is quite extensive, but it's not exhaustive, right? No matter what gift God has equipped you with, we are called to steward those gifts well. Peter tells us that the gifts we receive from God primarily should be used to bless one another. We're not supposed to hoard our gifts. We're not supposed to use our gifts for personal advancement. He puts those gifts into two categories. Those who speak, so those are like our preachers, our teachers, and even uh, those who are worship leading. And then those who serve. These are the church members who aren't behind the microphone or in front of a Sunday school class, but serve in different capacities, whether that's you know, in hospitality and visitation, or that's maintenance. And it's important to note that Peter doesn't put one category above another. And we tend to think that those with the microphone or those with the platform to speak have a more dignified role than, let's say, the janitor. That's not true. They are simply just two different positions that God gives strength both to. He gives strength to both positions for His glory. And Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, teaches that the church is like a body with many members with all different functions. We're not all the feet. We're not all the hands. But God in His sovereign wisdom arranges us as He chooses. And He affirms that those body parts that we think are less honorable, it's those that we bestow the greater honor. So those who are working behind the scenes, those whose servitude people don't recognize or see, guess what? God sees you. And God acknowledges you. No matter what your gifting is, God requires you to use it for His glory through serving people. It's required. Because the glory and dominion belong to Him. Use your gifts for God's glory. Use your gifts to bless another. Use your gifts in a way that honors Him. And some of us this morning, some of us in this room, struggle with serving. Some of us are reluctant to participate. Perhaps you think you don't have the time. I want to encourage you to rearrange your schedule to make the time. Make the time to be here on that day where you guys are fixing up the church. Be here. I want to encourage you and remind you that God made you to serve. God 
made you with a purpose, and it's for his glory. So what are you doing for your life for his glory? He's given you spiritual giftings. He's given you time. He's given you resources. All for his glory, so don't waste it. Maybe you feel like you're, you're not so capable, that your spiritual giftings are up to snuff. They aren't, you, you just don't feel like you're as capable as you'd like to be. And that's okay. Just get involved and begin to nurture those spiritual characteristics. You don't need to know it all or have it all down to serve. Because you want to know why? It's not your own strength that makes you capable. This is what verse 11 says. That you serve by the strength that God supplies in order that God may be glorified. So, if you have an opportunity to serve, serve. And you don't have to depend on your own strength, on your own abilities, because who supplies it? God does. And to Him belongs the glory. And some of us struggle with having the right attitude. Some of us get easily frustrated towards others. Maybe you're just a strongly opinionated person. I'm sure there's none of you here like that. On how things should be done. Maybe you're quick to voice your complaints when in regards to serving. Let's take Peter's words to heart where he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In a healthy church, love is the priority. Your love, it doesn't erase sin, right? Only Christ's uh, only Christ's sacrifice does that. But it does cultivate an environment that reflects the love of God. Love reflects heaven. And how does Christ teach us how to pray? He says like this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I promise you that if you commit yourself to prayer, prayer that's sober-minded, Prayer that's self-controlled, you're going to complain less. You're going to grumble less. And you're going to want to serve more. And it's okay. It's okay to voice your opinions. But remember, we're called to speak the truth in love. It's hard to serve. It's hard to serve with one another. But let's not have our attitudes and our complaints get in the way with accomplishing God's will. And there are those of you in the room this morning who are serving and who have been serving faithfully to the best of your ability. You are giving all of yourself. You are living sacrificially for the kingdom. And I commend you. I commend you to keep on going, to look to Christ for your strength, to look to Christ our Savior, who for the sake of love served us by giving us His life laying it down on the cross. Our captain, our king, who did not grumble or complain as they nailed his body down, who was perfect and innocent, yet unjustly slain. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we need to honor these individuals who are serving faithfully. We need to honor those who serve the church. Listen, 
I don't know many of you well at all. But I do know a few of you. I do know David and Stephanie. And I was honoring them before. And I do it intentionally. Because I am impressed with how they've served selflessly. Perhaps it would be better to say, I am blessed to have seen them serve so selflessly. I know Mark Harrigan, who's come and preached at my church several times. And I want to honor them and say, God bless you because you've blessed me. I want to honor Robbie, who I met this morning. Doing sound at the back. Thank you, Robbie. We need to honor those who serve behind the scenes. And I don't know who you people are who are doing that. But you know what? This congregation does. So take time this Sunday, take time every Sunday to thank those who serve. To honor those who give faithfully of themselves. Have them over for dinner to thank them and to show love to those and show love to those who serve by serving them. You know, th- this has been a great time of great transition here at New Village Church. Lots of change. So I want to close my time by reading one last passage of Scripture. It's Romans 12, verses 6 through 13. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use those gifts. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one is who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Church, serve. Serve together. And love one another. Call each other. Say, say, you are being such a servant today. Thank you. Let's look to the Lord, our great servant. Heavenly Father, thank you that you show us servitude. Thank you that we can see the pinnacle of serving Jesus Christ and his love towards us condescending down from heaven to earth to wash the feet of dirty men, to come and heal a sick and broken people, to take the blame and punishment of a wicked humanity. Thank you for the servitude of Christ and thank you that we can follow in that example. Lord, I pray for New Village Church. I pray for all the new things that are happening. I pray, Lord, for the momentum that this church is gaining. And I pray, Lord, that this church would be marked with love for one another and by their servitude, O God. May this church be a church who serves. May this church be a church who serves joyfully, cheerfully, without grumbling, without complaining. And may this church exist 
for your honor and for your glory, for your dominion, because you alone deserve it. You are worthy, Lord. We praise you. We thank you. And in your precious Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen.